to Motopod, the internet radio show all about motorcycle road racing. This is episode number 724. I'm your host, Jim McDowell, and with me tonight, not Richard Jowett from the UK, but our friend in the States, Scott Bolton, to talk about the Daytona 200. Scott, welcome to the show, and thanks for having a discussion about the 200 with me. Absolutely, Jim. Good to be back. Yeah, it's good to hear your voice, my friend. So, Let's just kind of get to it. We're the, we had mentioned in the previous show that there's a lot of controversy in the Daytona 200 about what happened at the end of it. So I kind of got together, looked at everything that had happened, said, okay, this is sort of something where I need to call in somebody who follows the series and knows really what's going on. So I asked Scott to join us for this evening. So Scott, I guess we're just going to jump right in here with the two with the 200. As it is, that's the race at the Daytona International Speedway for folks who don't know, maybe the Europeans, some of the listeners, although they did say that it's starting to become uh, very popular again for European riders who want to either do it at the beginning of their career or maybe at the end of their career. So it looks like it's gaining some more traction. It's starting to become bigger. It seemed as though this year was a lot more riders and teams were there. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. Uh, You know, last year kind of started picking back up with Moto America taking it over. And like uh, this year, you had uh, Sheridan Marias there. Uh, of course, this year, unfortunately, he got injured uh, in the qualifying session uh, and wasn't able to race. But you, you also had, uh, I think it's Matt Truelove. Uh, yep, uh, Truelove was there. Yeah, Harry, you know, his brother Harry races BSB. I, I believe that's him. And uh yeah, so you know, several. Let's see, there was uh, from several different countries represented riders that were there. So yeah, it's uh, yeah. it's it's good. Good seems to be gaining traction again. Finally, which is good. The other interesting thing about this, because it's the two hundred, and it's not it's a Moto America race, but it's not a Moto America race. There's a tire war. So we had Bridgestone, Pirelli, Dunlap all represented on the bikes, which was good to see. I thought as well. Yeah, I think uh, Daytona, speed, the Speedway actually requests it to be an open tire, hmm. uh, open tire manufacturer event. So, and because it's not part of the regular Moto America schedule, as far as the Super Sport, the 200 part of it, hmm. uh, you know, where of course during the regular season it's a Dunlop spec tire. Um, yeah, so it, that that throws a little bit of a extra interest into it yeah it does make it kind of nice so the 200 is run around the high banks of daytona using the infield road course if anybody's seen the cars race for the 24 hours of daytona they're using that particular type of layout except for they do shorten the international horseshoe uh for safety considerations for the bikes because there's not as much runoff area as there would be uh you know that cars you know they can kind of hit a tire wall and bounce off uh guys and bikes don't bounce off that too well but that's basically the layout for the track here for those not familiar with it. The race starts off and we had Josh Heron who was on pole. He kind of leads for a little bit. And in the first section, it's just trying to figure out where everybody was going to be some jostling back and forth. But basically it was some kind of combination of Escalante, Hayes, Eslick, Heron, PJ Jacobson, and Hayden Gillum, who were all in the front or at the front there. But the predominant two players at the beginning of this were kind of Escalante and um, Heron. Now, the rules of this is a little bit different. It's a modified super sport. So 
the benchmark motorcycle for this is the Yamaha R6. Then you can have a Pentagali V2. You can run the Triumph 765, and you can run a GSXR 750. Correct, Scott? That is correct, and I believe the MV uh, middleweight mm. model is also acceptable. Right. So, sort of, basically, you're looking back. At, I can't remember the last time Suzuki made a 750. That's been well, how long ago? Is that 20 years, maybe? No, you know, they have actually persisted. They're, they're really the only, uh, the Japanese manufacturers that's, that uh, maintained a 750, hmm. uh, you know, super super stock type model uh, really? throughout these hmm. years. Yeah, so, so the, you know, that's the deal where they... Uh, they they have to modify it from the uh, stock configuration to the fly by wire throttle. Okay. Which is a uh, it's a company in Europe that uh, through uh, actually Team Hammer, uh, you know the road racing world, John Ulrich, Chris Ulrich, they they actually sell that uh, kit in the states to to allow that bike to meet uh, Moto America specs. But yeah, so hmm. so of course most. Most of the uh, Suzuki campaigners have moved from the GSXR 600 to the uh, GSXR 750 for obvious reasons. For what it's worth, it seems as though it's all very even between everybody. Are the 750s and the Triumphs are they running a restrictor of any kind, Scott? I don't believe something. I think the Ducati might actually be running a some type of a restrictor. I'm not completely sure on that, but it seems like maybe they're a bit. There's some type of restriction on them. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, the first part of the race was, was definitely good. Well, you know, everybody's passing everybody everywhere. You really could throw a blanket over these top five guys and you could put them in any order that you really wanted to. We did have Cam Peterson, who was a favorite. I think he started second in the race. Uh, he had some sort of a problem. He was, he was sort of offline, kind of doing a lot of hand waving. And it was speculated that he was having like some sort of a shifting problem, like maybe catching a false neutral every now and then, or maybe it was like an electrical issue that was sort of an intermittent gremlin on that. But he was out and he pitted very early as if the crew was trying to fix the bike or change something on the bike. So they were trying something. They were trying to fix that particular problem. And then it was uh, Ty Scott was then out with an electrical issue as well in this first section. So then it became, well, when is everybody going to pit? Because that sort of sets it up. We try to figure out, like, where are we going to be? Because you're, you're trying to run, like, 20, 21 laps on a tank of fuel to, to break this up. It's a 57-lap it's a event. So roughly with the siding lap and warm-up lap, you're at, like, 59. So you call it 60. So you're kind of running three sets of 20 if you can all if you can at all. I thought, interestingly, at the, that the first guy in the leading group Escalante was the first guy to pit on lap 18 on the 750, which made me think that maybe the Suzuki was a little bit thirsty or they were just playing it safe. Which do you think it was, Scott? Yeah, I think it was just a strategy move by them, maybe to kind of get in and out of the pits uh, prior to the rest of the guys. And uh, yeah, because it, like you said, it, it's, it's a big uh, strategy move, uh, how they time their pit stops, who comes in together some teams will work with other teams to you know so that when they exit the pits they've got somebody to draft with because the draft is 
so huge uh, at Daytona, uh, you know, the banking and the uh, trioval coming in, you know, the, the front straightaway, well, the front trioval part. So, Yeah, that run out of the chicane is critical. A lot of times the guy leading out of the chicane is not the guy who's leading at the, at the start-finish line for sure. So maybe it was just a strategy move by them. Uh, Heron, Gillum, and PJ all came in a lap later on 19. But Hayes on the Squid Squid Hunter bike and Essek on the Triumph, they didn't pit until lap 20, which was, that's pretty good mileage considering, again, you had a siding lap, you had a warm-up lap. So that was going pretty good. But it was uh, the defending champion, uh, Pace, is it Pace, Paceage? I believe it's uh, pa- Posh, Brandon Posh. Posh. Posh, okay. Posh was there, but he was in on 21 with the Triumph. So he had exceptional fuel mileage, but he was sort of in the middle of the pack. He was definitely not in that top five. He was in the second group. So you're running around in a draft the whole time. It's going to kind of conserve some fuel. So it wasn't stretched to see him. It, I wasn't surprised that he went to 21. And I thought, wow, he's really looking good for the end of the race because, again, the strategy, as you go to the next pit stop, that pit stop now can become much shorter because you may not have to take a full load of fuel and generally in these pit stops even though you're allowed to have your pneumatic air guns or electric uh, impacts to change tires and wheels that you are you still waiting for the fuel even after all the tires are done and we're talking about changing fronts and rears here for people so that was pretty interesting to see where it was but that really shook up that beginning pack that was there that that group of five kind of got lost a little bit as everybody tried to find their dance partner and draft themselves back up to it because Escalante had pitted first. He sort of came back to the top as everybody cycled through Heron was then running him down with turning some good laps. Hayes would finally get by uh, Danny Eslick who had worked his way into the front because, you know, Hayes and Eslick pitted together. So they came out together and they were sort of running in the draft together to get to the front. And then there was PJ and then Gillum and Pasich. So that was there. So again, this sort of became the middle section. It was just guys putting down laps. There really wasn't a whole lot that was going on. Um, you know, there was, it was, it was interesting through this it's the middle yeah, section. Yeah. Usually, you know, the first uh, stint before the, the first round of pit stops, Usually got guys out there, you know, testing the waters, you know, the drafting and, and use it generally happens that that first round of stops separates that group a bit. You'll, you'll, you know, at, at Daytona, just uh, two or three seconds on pit stops, uh, can, can split the field. So, so that's generally what happens. And then, as you said, some guys are able to, to pull back in that difference in, uh, and be there for the second round of stops to, uh, you know, kind of set up the finish. We had about 20 laps to go and it became like sort of a three lighter, three rider lead draft, Escalante, Heron, and Hayes. The other guys had kind of fallen down a little bit. Uh, but a couple laps later, PJ was down at turn four in the, in the infield section. He was down and got back up at 21 laps to go. Heron, it was a Heron versus Escalante battle as Hayes had fallen off. Like Hayes could not run the pace of the two guys up front. 
what was interesting was uh, Escalante was wicked fast through the chicane and the back straightaway. He would put some distance on Heron, but Heron would kind of run him down heading into turn one because of the draft. It was I thought, well, this is going to be interesting. He's obviously thinking at the end of the race, Escalante is thinking, well, if I'm quick through here and Heron's not quite on me, I can probably win this maybe leading from, from there. So uh, at 20 laps, uh, Gil, there was, there was, uh, Gillen was down at the chicane, but he picked himself back up and got going again. Uh, Heron and uh, Escalante would pit with 20 laps to go. Now, the workhorse Ducati guys got Heron back out first. Now, they were pitted down at the extreme end of pit lane. So they didn't have to worry about, all they had to do was worry about coming down the pits at the uh, 37 mile an hour speed limit that they have imposed in pit lane, then stop. And then there's no really, they can't accelerate to 37 before they reach the end of the pit lane. So it was probably, that was the main reason that they got back by. But it was definitely interesting that Heron's pit crew was able to put him back out front again. You would have thought that, you know, the M4 guys would have been a little quicker, you know, because that's Ulrich's team, correct, Scott? Uh, yeah, yeah, the Team Hammer. Team Hammer. So those guys have been endurance champions for decades. So I would have thought that they'd really been a little quicker on pit stops. Yeah, it's it's such a crapshoot, Jim, at Daytona with the pit stops because it's the only race of the year. Those who, you know, the teams that do, as far as the top teams that run the normal Moto America schedule, that choose to run that race, you know, even though they have prior experience with pit stops as in team hammer, um, it's still not something they do on a regular basis. So, so it's always a crapshoot. You know, they have the, the pit stop competition after qualifying on Saturday. And that that's always interesting to watch because it's the top five qualifiers and they will, uh, you know, I think, I think I think the uh, Warhorse team won it last year, and uh, I, I don't remember right off who won it this year. But but the Warhorse team had the quickest time again. But they left a uh, they left the uh, the socket off the air wrench on the rear tire, and it so it put a time penalty on them. So so yeah, it, it's a it's a hit or miss on the you know on the on the, the pit stops, as I said, because it's not a normal thing for them. Yeah, that is true. Uh. From 20 laps to go to eight to go, it was pretty much just Escalante leading Heron everywhere. And it was just lap after lap being put in, and nothing was really changing. At eight to go, we start to get into the really good bit, because now there's not a whole lot of laps left in this thing. With At the beginning of eight to go, Escalante's leading. He's out wide coming into turn one, which is what I would call the normal racing line that the guys take through that turn. Heron had come in tighter and was heading to the tighter apex. Now, they bump. And it, if you're looking at it in real time, they bump. Escalante goes down, goes into the tire barrier, and he, I think he maybe broke a handlebar, foot peg, something like that. But he was not able to remount his bike and continue. And Escalante was hot at Heron. There were gloves thrown on the ground. 
you could tell he was upset. Okay. It's the 200, arguably one of the bigger races in America. Um, that's so he had this opportunity to win it. I think he would have became the first. Uh, Escalante is from South America. Mexico. It's Mexico. Mexico. Okay. So yep. he would have been the first Mexico. I was thinking he was from South America for some reason, but that's not true. You're, thank you, Scott. Yeah. So he was going to be like the first Mexican to win the 200, which would have been amazing for him to actually be able to do that. But they didn't. Now, if you slowed it down and through the broadcast, I know uh, that they were talking about this. You look at it, it's like Escalante sees Heron out of the corner of his eye because he tends to straighten the bike up a little bit as if they want to try to run, you know, side by side through the rest of the turn. But it's not enough or Heron starts to occupy space because he's so tight, he's going to be forced to go wide anyway. And their lines just converge and down they go. So I looked at it. I thought it was a racing incident. Scott, did you see it differently? Tim, I I would say at the end of the day, yes. But just personally, it was for that point of the race, it, it just seemed a bit dodgy to me for Heron to stuff it up the inside like that. Escalante, the appeared to take pretty much the same line he had been taking into turn one the whole race. And Heron was going to run wide. If he would have cleared Escalante, he probably would have run wide and Escalante would have shot it back up the inside of him. But like you said, Escalante, at the last minute, realized he was coming up under him, stood the bike up momentarily, but then had to kind of lean it back in to try to make the corner. And that, at that point, they, they made contact. So it just, to me, it was a bit questionable. I mean, I, I get that Heron thought he was had some kind of major horsepower deficit. He made that comment. I don't know if it was after the red flag or after the race. Yeah, I was going to do that during the talk about that part of it during the red yeah. flag to come here. So yeah, let's kind of let's table that for a second. Yeah, that's right. Just just and just talk about what at that moment in time what we thought about that incident. Well, uh, you know, I, I just saw it, Jim, that the, the way they just the nature of Daytona mm -hmm. that Heron, I think he had the. I think he had the bike and the motor if he could have, you know, been, you know, been close enough to Escalante coming off the chicane onto the turn three banking that he could have drafted by him at the line. It, it, to me, it just seemed the, like I said, a bit dodgy. Now I get it. It's the Daytona 200. It's, 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 it's a kind of a big race again, fortunately, but, uh, I, I it just, you know, I mean, honestly, Heron made it harder on himself. He he was probably in the position to more than likely win the race anyway, if he would have played it smart. Instead, the red flag got flew or you know, was thrown and he he was moved back to sixth for the restart. So it kind of created a little bit of extra work for him. Obviously, he had the package that it that wasn't that big a penalty for him, but anyway. Right. Yeah, I you know, looking at it, looking at it, looking at it, my first reaction was it's a, it's a racing incident. It it just happened. 
when you when you really slowed it down, you looked at all the replays from all the different angles. You know, I, I think Jason Pridmore was still very much on board that it was a racing incident. I think uh, Greg White had a little different opinion. I think he was like, it's the 200, bro, and these things happen. And then sort of Jason flipped then and kind of went like, yeah, I think that was a bit much. In hindsight, I think it was a bit much. Uh, it was one of those things where like if that had happened at two to go, I don't think it's as much a big a deal except for it happened at eight to go, which meant that it was definitely an out of character move for an endurance type race such as this. So uh, did you say something you want to put in there, Scott? Not well, just, oh. you know, I mean, Heron is a, a very talented rider. I mean, the guy's very capable. He's, but he's, very he's a bit over emotional at times he's a bit hot-headed and yeah i mean i could see it either way like i say it it wasn't flagrant enough that i still wouldn't put it in the extreme uh category of a racing incident but it was borderline to me so it wasn't as egregious as mark marquez taking down oliver at porto mayo <laughs> well yeah i mean we're talking marquez <laughs> true very true mm. but yes there so the next thing that happens is that we have five to go and a red flag comes out now this was due to an accident that in, that was at the at the international horseshoe which is the first horseshoe at the track on the infield it was uh hobbs and waters and uh eslick was in there too i believe right scott Correct. Okay. So those guys all go down, or at least two of them. Hobbs and Waters went down. I think Eslick was maybe there, but the bike was out of shape, and I think he maybe got it back again. The camera angle I saw didn't really show Eslick that much. I know he was a part of it. He was right there when it happened. Right. So this, so, so this puts the race into a red flag situation. Now, credit to the, to the people who are running the show on TV. They ran down to Heron's pit, and they said, hey, what happened with you and Escalante? Well, Heron says, oh, I was trying to figure out something for the end of the race. Okay, that, okay, yeah, everybody's got to figure out where they want to be on those final couple of laps. But then Heron drops something else. He says, you know, I'm 15 horsepower down on Escalante, so I had to figure out where I could make a move. Okay, but I'm like, huh, that's interesting. As, as good as that Ducati was working, and you feel like you are 15 horsepower down on the 750 Suzuki? I'm not so sure about that one. It sounded like he was kind of trying to cover his... To me, it sounded like Heron was trying to cover his tracks about what happened. Now, I agree that he was probably looking and searching for something, and he figured if he ran tight and could hold it, then he gives him an advantage because, obviously, he occupies the space that Escalante is going to want as Escalante comes around to square the corner off at the very end, end of one. Do you? What did you think of his remarks, Scott? Um... I put it down to typical Heron. Okay. Okay. He's he's there again. He's he don't control his emotions real good in the heat of the moment. It's just it's and, and you know it, it isn't in, it's an intense sport. I get it. And um, you know, no personal dislike of Heron, but sometimes he lets his uh, emotions in his mouth get the better of him, and that was another perfect example. Yeah, because it is obviously. 
not 15 horsepower. Maybe on the dyno it is, but at Daytona and with the setups and with whatever, it was not very apparent uh, lap after lap that he was lacking 15 horsepower or Escalante would have been long gone. Yeah. If it's 15 horsepower over and over, Escalante is out front by a mile and a half and this doesn't happen. Yes. I personally, I think it's the fact that Heron could not, uh, typical Ducati, right? That you've always hear everyone who's ridden a Ducati, except for maybe the Desmo DeCicis and MotoGP, that the Ducatis turn like a truck. They're very difficult to turn. Even I, I rode a Ducati for a little bit. I had a friend who had a 996, and it was a street form. And even riding it on the street was like, good Lord, this thing doesn't want to turn at all. Mm-hmm. So, it, I mean, it wants to just plow straight on. And, and back in that generation of those bikes, it's you know, you have more of a 90-degree V-twin with one cylinder laid straight out towards the front wheel. And it's very hard to pull the front end in and create a lot of rake or uh, rake trail. I can't remember off the top of my head which way it is. <laughs> But you, it's hard to pull that back in to get it to be where it's a turny bike. And I think that Escalante on that Suzuki, which has, you know, most 750 Suzuki's have some really amazing handling. Like it's like your mind is you're you're like a true extension of the bike. You can it's like having your hands on the front axle most of the time for the Suzuki's that I've been on. And I think Escalante had a better line could carry more speed through the chicane, which gave him a gap every time that they got onto the banking at, uh, you know, turn three of Daytona, turn three. So he would run off a little bit. But Heron always was close to Escalante when they got to the finish line, sometimes a little closer than others, sometimes a little farther back than others, but always right there and closing in because he's got a little bit, he gets a little sniff of the draft off of four and they run down the banking and then they head to it and, He's closing in on it. So I think it was a little bit of Heron just kind of, you know, I don't want to say whining, but I think it was more like I got to explain my deficiency in some way because I think I'm a good rider and there's nobody going faster than me. But yeah, there was. It was Escalante. He was just riding better than you at this point in time. And that's kind of how I see it. But I think it's pretty much what you're saying too, Scott. It's kind of just emotion and typical Heron and that's the way it goes, right? So then we had a long break as they got things all sorted out. And they just, and it was like, oh, well, this is, if the red flag came out on lap 52, well, there's 57 laps in the race. There should be a five-lap sprint race back to the finish. Well, that was not the case. It was a 10-lap event that was going to happen. Now, do we have a reason for why they added five laps to it, Scott? Yeah, everybody was confused. Uh, the announcers, the teams, the riders, uh, the fans. <laughs> so I was, uh, I'll give you that. <laughs> yeah. So, so what I've got here, Jim, is from uh, the excellent publication uh, website, Road Racing World, uh, David Schwartz, their main, their main writer. Okay. I'm going to basically just read how he defined the situation because it explains it better than anything I've seen on it. Sounds good. Let's hear it. So he starts out with the red flag. On lap 53 of 57, Danny Eslick, Teague Hobbs, and Jason Waters came together in the International Horseshoe with Hobbs and Waters crashing. 
The location of the crash forced race control to stop the race with the red flag so workers could safely access and deal with the crash scene. Next is length, the length of the restart. The leaders of the race had completed 52 of 57 scheduled laps when the race was stopped in the 2023 Daytona 200 and Supersport extended race supplemental regulations. And just real quick, they this season in the Supersport Class of Moto America, they're having two extended races with one pit stop. So those regulations were the same as the Daytona 200 regulations this year, which is, of course, the, the super sports, you know, class. Um, it states that if the Daytona 200 is stopped after more than three laps and less than 53 laps are completed, the race will be restarted for a second race and the distance of the second restarted race will be enough to complete the original race distance of 57 laps and shall not be less than 10 laps. Uh As as a result, the 2023 Daytona 200 was actually the Daytona 217.62-62 laps times 3.51 miles. Hmm. According to the 1972 Daytona 200 winner and Daytona 200 historian, Don MD, this was the longest Daytona 200 race. Next, uh, he states how riders who were not, I'm sorry, how riders who were one or more laps down before the red flag were classified on the lead lap for the restart. Only riders who finish 75%, parenthesis, 39 laps in this case, of the general race were actively competing at the time of the red flag stoppage were eligible to compete in the second slash restarted race. The grid positions were determined according to the finishing order of the first slash stopped race, according to the rules. and the final race classification will be established according to the position and the number of laps of each rider at the time he crossed the finish line at the end of the last part of the race. In short, this means that the second slash restarted race was a new race only open to riders who had completed 39 laps of the original race and were still actively competing when that original race was stopped. And then uh, he, David Schwartz finishes this explanation with the time penalties that were assessed to Blake Davis, Kevin Nolde, and Brandon Posh for speeding on pit road, 15 second penalties. That was during the first portion of the race. Again, in the rules, it clearly states in bold, riders receiving a time penalty in the first race will have the penalty applied only to the finish of the final race. So even though the second slash restarted race was considered a new race with everyone on the lead lap again, Davis, Nolde, and Posh were still assessed time penalties 
they incurred during the first during the stop slash first race. Wow. There's a lot there, Scott. Yep. Wow. Yeah. So Okay. Oh. And, and and there's a lot of questions, you know, oh, yeah. afterwards can... that were asked as far as why are the rules written that way? And I have heard, uh, you know, that supposedly they are looking at making some changes within, within that Daytona 200 yeah, and super sport <laughs> extended race supplemental regulations. But yeah. with that being said, Moto America followed the rules as they were written. That is true. Given that, yeah. So, okay, <laughs> let's try to put, let's try to piece this all together. And now, knowing the rule book, it's, we can try to piece this together. So, the stewards deemed that Heron was at fault for the accident with Espelante. So, he would then receive a sixth grade place penalty. So, he wouldn't start. First, he started six places back. And then, okay, so that takes care of that part of it. That's just a separate incident. And the question I got there is, is that I guess you could, I guess it's well within their rules to be able to actually implement that. But you would think that they would have given, which I guess is the only way you could do it fairly for Heron. Now that I think about it, because if what else would you do if he if he was deemed to have caused the accident, what would you have done if the race would have continued on unabated? Would he have received a time penalty or would he have been told to have a stop and go? Do we know? Uh, do you even know, Scott, what they would do if that in that case? I'm not sure, Jim. It's a very I don't good... know that one because that yeah. one's been perplexing to me. It's a very good question. I think it I think it got the uh, Moto America. Uh, and the, as the stewards off the hook for having to make that call, yeah, and they could just uh, that way they were able to say, okay, that was a little bit questionable. We're going to do this, but it wasn't anything that was really going to affect the overall outcome because basically he started on what the second or third row, the at third worst. row, yeah, yeah, so, third row at worst, which and Heron they, was back to the front almost instantly. Yeah, like I say, he get a good start, and you're with the top guys, you know, in the draft. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, this is not going to be an issue. Okay, so that kind of gets that point across. So I think, I think that if the race had run to its conclusion without a red flag stoppage, I don't think any penalty would have been assessed to Heron. I don't think they would have done anything to him whatsoever. I think this, like you said, it was an opportunity for them to do something. Hey, that was a little bit much. We're going to give you a sixth grade penalty. We're going to start again. Good luck. And like you said, I mean, if you saw Heron obviously had a motorcycle that was very capable of winning that race. And so was it in doubt? Probably not. But it, sure, sure, it wasn't, you know, if the race hadn't stopped, Heron was going to win. And if even with the stoppage, Heron still won. So that's interesting. So the extra lap. So as you said, it was like, because we were at 52, that demanded, with the red flag, that demanded that we had to have a race to the completion of the event. So 52 to 57 is five laps. But the other five laps came comes from, what what did Schwartz say? Well, I don't, I'm, the other five is what I'm still missing. Why yeah. there was five more? 
Yeah, so, so basically what it says, if the Daytona 200 is stopped after more than three laps and less than 53 laps are completed, the race will be restarted for a second race and the distance of the second slash restarted race will be enough to complete the original race distance of 57 laps and shall not be less than 10 laps. Oh, and shall not be less than 10 laps. Yes. Okay. So since we have to restart, we have to cover the entire distance. So if the race had stopped at lap 47, it had been 10 laps because you had to get to 57. Correct. As, as I read that. Okay. Oh, that now makes sense. Okay. Yeah. So if that's the rule, I didn't catch the had to at least be, shall not be less than 10 laps. I Okay. That makes more sense now. So you got to have the distance and it can't be any less than 10 laps. So you had to add another five to it because you couldn't do anything less than 10 laps. All right. Well, they're consistent, right? Here's the rule. Here's the book. And they did what they said that they wanted to do. So, okay. Can't really fault the guys for that one on that. So sure. that leads to the next one. So the next thing to me now is Espelante. Espelante had been down at eight. Three laps had gone by, and then we have the red flag. So if Espelante could have gotten his bike back to the pits, would he have been allowed to restart having not done those three laps in between? Because he obviously did more than 39 laps. So would he have been allowed to restart? He would have actually. Wow. Yeah. Um, That's cool. Yeah, actually. Um, uh, his teammate, uh, T Cobbs, he restarted, he right. went to the medical center and thought he was done and was getting ready to go to the trailer and take off his leathers. And the team started yelling to him to, Hey, come back. We're restarting. Hmm. And yeah, so he, he restarted. Yeah. Huh. So it, yeah, Escalante, if, if he so, could have got that back. Hmm back to the pits and they could have got it repaired in time. He would have, re he could have restarted. That's so now that throws another thing because he's at, I'm, I'm assuming I, I don't know where the bike actually was. I, I know it's in turn one. And if it's, if it was up against the tire barrier, there's, and it's a red flag. Why didn't he just push the bike back to the pits at that point? Yeah. He should have been able to go right across to pit lane. And I mean, then that opens another can of worms because you're, backwards on a racetrack but you're pushing it so that's a whole other can of worms but but i would have been really interesting if the boys at m4 you know and, and team hammer would have been able to get espelante's bike back together again and put him back out there for those final 10 that changes the entire complexity of the entire race at that point because you you would have had a great Okay, it was a pretty damn fantastic finish to begin with. We'll we'll get there at some point, people. I swear, <laughs> I promise. We're trying to get through all the rules and minutia here. But if you add Escalante back to that mix, even if he started in 10 laps, if he'd started even dead last, he still probably had a good shot at being in the top 10, if not more. Because you so so another thing about that rule that's interesting is the 39 laps. So if if somebody was hadn't completed the 39 laps and had only done like 38, which there probably wasn't, but they wouldn't have been allowed to get back out then. If you'd been that slow or had a problem that you were working on in the pits and you though all those laps had ticked away to where you did not complete 39, 
you they would have told you no we're sorry your race is done correct wow okay so this is you know i have to give you i will i will tell you rich and i have given the stewarding a lot of crap in motor gp <laughs> just over inconsistencies if you guys heard the last episode of what's a penalty you know what we're talking about here because it's not consistent at all i will give props where props are due and it is obviously the moto america stewards deserve props for this because they obviously understood the rule book and applied the rules to the letter of the law of what you're allowed to do or not do in this racing situation which i find I applaud that because you at least stuck to the rule book. Now, we can debate the rest of the night whether that rule book is correct or not. And I think we Scott and I had a little chat before we started the show, but they're thinking about actually changing some of those rules before we get to these extended super sport races that are going to take place in the regular Moto America season, correct? Yeah, that's uh nothing officially has been announced, but that's I've heard yeah. kind of behind the scenes that uh that's being looked at. But yeah, like you said, don't fault the stewards. Uh no, you know, fault mm. the rule book if you don't like it. <laughs> What's the old saying? Don't hate the game, hate the player. That's right. Because yeah. that's because everybody everybody's got a rule book. Yep. I, yep. I mean, I'm telling you, I, I know this from experience because we would get a rule book every year running AMA Pro Racing, whether we were dirt tracking. Road racing, you know, if it was road racing, it was a CCS rule book. There was a Weir rule book. I think at the time we had Glero that was running a series. We were running Glero. Everybody had a rule book. Mm-hmm. And most of the time, those things got you, you got those things like right at the end of the year slash January of the next year. And I swear, my I would sit and read that rule book from beginning to end for each one of those. And my dad would do the same thing because we did not want to not know <laughs> somewhere. My old, my old man would have highlighted in different colors <laughs> all throughout that book. So if there was any situation that showed up that pertained to us and what we were doing when we were racing, it would be like, hey, this is the rule book. And eh, I've seen a couple of times where my old man did shove a rule book in some people's faces. And well, <laughs> I, we weren't exactly welcome people at that point, but you get the point here. I mean, yeah. Come on, guys. You are you at this point, at this level of Daytona 200, you, that is for the U.S., the, the top level motorsport series. There's no there was no higher motorcycle series than that in the U.S. And you guys didn't read the rule book. Yeah, that was funny. You know, that's the, hilarious. Even afterwards, Greg White uh, said he said, you know, I, I should have been being commentating on the race. I should have been more uh, tuned into to the complexity of the rule book than I was, and I yeah. could have I could have, you know, done a better job of explaining it during the broadcast instead of having to having to piece it together afterwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think that gets that gets that part of it. So it, it, they start the race; it's ten laps to go, right? So Heron's got the six grid piss six grid place penalty for uh the incident with es- Espelanta and they did it as 10 laps now the interesting thing was you could add fuel to the bike that's another unique twist to all of this you can add fuel but you can't change tires so then it's like you got to stop and ask yourself well wait a second who was the last person to pit right because they would have the freshest tires well guess who that person happened to be gotta take a get you want to guess yeah, well, it was uh, Peterson because yeah. of his, he was off sequence. He was and had that extra stop. Right. 
And that, it was actually a clutch problem, Jim. That oh, I, it was I, a clutch problem. Okay, I was, was going by what with. Greg White and and um, Pridmore were talking about. Yeah, so we had a so, clutch going. Okay. Yeah, so, uh, but yeah, that that gave him the edge on uh, fresher tires than so anybody they, else in that group. Did, sorry, Scott, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, there. no. Uh, so did his t- did did Peterson's the did the attack Yamaha team fix the clutch during the red flag? Was that part of what? Are were they allowed to touch the bikes in that way? Yeah, apparently they did. Because, so they fixed the clutch. Yeah, because he, <laughs> oh. he 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 got off the line good on that. Uh, That's what I was thinking after the red flag restart. Yeah, yeah. So as the race, I mean, in the live running, you know, as let's put it this way, and me watching the race when I did, they started and like I said, PJ or not PJ, but uh, Peterson, Cam Peterson, on the attack Yamaha is right there with everybody, and I'm like thinking, okay, I know he's got fresher tires. But dude, you're like a lap down, and it's like everybody's like scrambling to figure out what's going on. And again, it's it's sort of it's comical. Let's just say that because Fred Moore, Greg White, and you know you got like Roger Hayden and Greg Kramer, they're all kind of missing the boat because the scoring eventually updates itself and shows that Peterson's actually supposed to be there, but they don't believe it. <laughs> At first, it's like, well, that's not really right. But then, you know, they are. That is right. So, wow, that's like this whole what's per- the proverbial cat amongst the pigeons? Because suddenly now, a guy who was struggling w- with a clutch problem, as you've now pointed out to us, is now in a chance to win the Daytona 200 because he just happens to have fresher tires. Now, they were talking to his crew, and they did say that their schedule was they were thinking about making three stops instead of the normal two. I don't know if I buy that one. I think that might have just been a quirk of luck and they were going to call it strategy. <laughs> you get a thought on that, Scott? Yeah, I you know, I'm I, I didn't I didn't hear that comment from him, but uh yeah, I, it's it would be I, I, it'd be very unusual for for a three-stop strategy in that race because the the time in the pits is so crucial. Uh, yeah. you know during that race so uh yeah, it, yeah it, and and i think uh I, I believe it was uh uh pj jacobson that that thought he was still a lap down and was not getting really up in the mix for the win to you know not mess with the guys that he thought were a lap ahead of him yeah which is commendable for PJ. I mean, as a rider, that's the way you should be, right? If you're really a lap down, you don't, you know, I hate that when you see that sometimes in Moto3, a guy who's leading falls or whatever, and it, it's there's a lot of time involved, and then the leaders are coming, and they want to mix it up with the leaders again, which I think is ridiculous mm-hmm. at that point. I mean, we've seen some black flags that have been displayed for stuff like that before. And, you know, all props to PJ for behaving that way, even though he didn't know. But again, yeah. it's the yeah. guys, there's a rule book. <laughs> they they didn't print the book like two days before the race. Yeah. Right. So right. you you had not you 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 know again, I think there's a lot of people now diving into this rule book and looking at it and critiquing everything that's in it because they're not gonna let this happen in the next extended super sport race there. So where as a let's see. So again, the next thing that happens, we finally get to the race. Like the last lap is really interesting. Hayes comes from like nowhere to be leading going into the last lap. 
uh, you know, using the draft to his advantage to be that way. I think Hayes thought his shot was to get through the chicane as fast as he could to see if he could stay ahead of Heron in the, in the chasing group. And Hayes did have quite the lead coming out. He was on some fairly worn tires as well as, you know, Herons were pretty much toast because he would go up the banking at two and he'd spin pretty much the whole way up the banking with it. So they were, these guys were running around on some pretty fried tires because uh, I was trying to think of like who, when did they, they pit it uh, with like 20 laps to go roughly. So we were talking about having a set of tires that had gone roughly 30 laps. That's a fair distance for anybody's tire, whether it's Bridgestone, Pirelli or Dunlap, but it is credit to the guys that they were able to hang on to it. And Heron did get through the chicane with a pretty good drive and him and the pack did chase down Hayes. So Heron would then win the race by seven hundredths of a second, I believe they said. Hayes finished second. Then um, uh, Pesic would be third. But that got dropped back, right? Because he had the 15-second penalty. Mm -hmm. So that elevated um, Peterson to a podium and put Gillum in fourth. And I think then, I'm not sure where exactly Brandon finished in there, but that's how the race actually finished up, which, you know, given everything that happened, it was a eventful, very, very exciting race. Um, unfortunately, you know, I have a red flag in it. That doesn't really, you know, everybody was okay. I think after that, it was evolved in the incident was okay. So a good race. Everybody gets out of Daytona safely, which is sort of the main thing I I get it. Daytona is a very big name and it is a big race, but Daytona scares me. I just don't like motorcycles around walls. I just, not for me. It's but, uh, but it's a great, it. it's a great race. I mean, Oh, it is. I'm not going to deny that. But, I, but that's yeah. a personal me, Jim thing. No, I'm the <laughs> same little, way, Jim. Scared, you know? I'm, I'm on pins and needles more than about any other race that I watch. Yeah. Watching them go around the high banks and, uh, I mean, you know, there was a race, one of the, one of the two hundreds there. Uh, oh man, this has been a, at least eight or 10 years ago where they mm -hmm. had a, a, a crash at the end of the race. And I think it was, can't remember the riders involved, but one of them was one of the M4 Suzuki's and there were uh, three riders that went down, come into the line. And, uh, fortunately nobody was seriously injured, but man, that, that, uh, team hammer Suzuki it ended up going into the, the trial wall, Oof. you know, well over a uh, hundred miles an hour and just absolutely disintegrated. And it was like, man, what if the, uh, rider would have still been, uh, hooked yeah. up with that thing. So it's, uh, you know, and let's talk, uh, you know, Gagne, he, yeah. he chose not to race it for the attack team this year. You yeah. know, he, he didn't race it. He was going to race it last year and he got, he got injured during one of the practice sessions and, uh, yeah, he just opted out this year. It's focusing on the Superbike uh, campaign only, but, uh, yeah. yeah, it's, and, and of course, you know, it's, they don't race the Superbikes there anymore because of the tires. Um, and so, but still, I mean, the super sports now are, are turning really lap quick. times and hitting top speeds, you know, in the one eighties of, you know, what the super bikes were doing just you know 10 to 15 years ago yeah uh, for me the daytona 200 is is it's like the isle of man it's a very 
love hate relationship with that race, right? It's like usually it's a really good race. It's pretty intense, but you're watching it through your eye, through your through your fingers because you, the consequences of something is severe, right? So, yeah, it's that way. Yeah. So let's finish this out here, Scott. So do we know which two rounds have the extended super sport race? I do not off the top of my head. Yeah, it's uh I'm it's Barber. Okay, Barber, that's in April. That's in April. Mm -hmm. I know that yeah. or May. It's in May. Oh yeah, okay. It's like the first weekend in May or something. First or second yeah. weekend in May. Yeah, okay. And uh then the other one is uh I'm pretty sure it's Laguna in July. Really? Okay, cool. That'd yeah. be cool. That'd be interesting to see what they yeah. do and how they do it. That's going to be cool. I mean, I think it's an interesting little twist to add to Moto America to bring a little extra to it there. I mean, it's kind of like the sprint race thing with Moto GP. It's yeah, well, cool. you know, it's different. You know, it's like, yeah. And, you know, it's like they said, they, they've already, uh, the teams that do run the 200, they've already got the quick change setups in place. So, yeah. So, why not use them uh, more than once? Because, I mean, that's got to be a huge expense for those teams to, design slash practice slash have a bike that can quickly change front and rear wheels. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, if it's, you if you have it, then why not? See, I was interested when I, when they first started that, I heard about it, the, this longer sprint or not super sport, not, not sprint. I was wondering if they were going to like have it as like a red flag where everybody could then come in, change everything and then, you know, start again. But but then I realized that, well, it's the race is not stopping. It's just going to keep going and we're going to have to actually have pit stops, which is a unique twist. I mean, it's going to be, I, I like it. I think, I think I do. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's throw a little bit different uh, complexity into those two rounds. And I think it's where there's a time limit that they have to be on pit road for a certain amount of time. So, so it won't, mm -hmm. shouldn't split up the field that much but uh it's gonna be interesting to see how that works out yeah that's gonna be fun to watch i think uh be theirs as we are so what is the very first moto america official round this year is it should be is it road atlanta here yeah yeah this, two weeks uh two weeks, two weeks away at road atlanta away. that'll yeah that's where the super bikes uh will uh make their first appearance and uh you know it's a lot of a lot of uh anticipation of that with the cambo ba coming back in on the uh is that is that official now oh yeah <laughs> okay because there was there's a lot of cam is cam isn't and there and whatnot but i'll talk about that and i'm like it's, why, it's, why wouldn't you i was like come on i mean you know yeah it, it's kind of it's kind of funny uh uh sean bias who uh you know one of the uh publicist for moto america him and paul carruthers do the uh, off-track podcast mm -hmm. uh he put out a uh, article last week about he, it was entitled beating around the bush and he said that that's kind of what he seems to spend a lot of his time doing and he 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 basically stated in it the longest and worst kept secret in moto america history five-time moto america champion and former moto two World Championship contender Cam Bobier returns to the U.S. to headline the Tyler Cycle uh, four-rider team that also includes P.J. Jackson and Corey Alexander, who's moving up from Stock 1000. And uh, 
And one surprise that he mentioned that I didn't know about until I read this article that Stefano Mesa, who's probably like would be considered the top privateer uh, bounty hunter racer in America that goes around and, you know, collects all the contingency money at the club races uh, and it, who actually won one of the uh, twin cup uh, races at Daytona subbing for uh, an injured uh, Kayla Yakov who had got injured the week before Daytona. She's actually riding for uh, Melissa Paris, the MP13 team, which is Josh Hayes' wife. Mm, mm-hmm. And uh, so they drafted Mesa to fill in for her at Daytona in those two races. The first race, he had a mechanical, but he won the second race. And uh, But he's going to be racing a uh, Kawasaki ZX-6R for the full Supersport Championship for Tyler's uh, cycle racing team. So that ought to be pretty interesting because Stefano is a fast, he's, he's a fast dude. And, uh, it's the first time he's ever been on a, you know, where he's not doing the driving the rig and doing the wrenching and racing and all that. So I think, mm-hmm. I think, I think he'll, uh, be a, be a contender in that group. And also speaking of Hayes, Josh Hayes is running the uh, Red Atlanta round on super sport on the oh, squid cool. hunter back. Yeah. So, so that should, uh, should he's, be a good show. Yeah, he's chasing 87. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 80, 87 national wins. He's one away That's from crazy. tying Miguel Duhamel. I thought they were tied. No, yeah. he, he, he's, huh. he's one from away from tight. Now he probably, I don't think they're signed up to run the full series. Uh, as far as I know, you know, they, they ran just limited rounds last year, but yeah, he, he could very well take that all time, uh, AMA, uh, pro racing, uh, win total number this year. So that's, uh, and Hayes is a great guy. You, oh, you got, I, Josh Hayes is fantastic. He's, yeah, he's so you, incredibly if, personable, you know, do anything. I mean, he, Last year we were at Barber and he had broken, he'd fallen off, broken his tib fib. And, you know, he's sitting there doing track announcing. I mean, it's just the kind of guy he is. It's yeah. an incredible person. And I'll tell you, when I was doing uh, the, you know, a lot of rider interviews and whatever for Motopod uh, several years ago, uh, interviewed Hayes several times. And that was always one of my favorite interviews because he was just so, it's easy to talk to, but so, so informative. And, uh, yeah, just, just a great guy and, yeah. and, a and still a very fast guy. Yep. Sure is. Alrighty folks. That's going to do it for me and Scott, Scott, thank you so much for coming on and, uh, chatting with me about this and giving a little insight into what happened down there in Daytona. Really appreciate that. Yeah. Pleasure to all mine, Jim. And, uh, so folks, uh, again, two weeks, there's Moto America in road Atlanta, and then a week after that, or two weeks after that, is the race in uh, Birmingham and uh, at Barber Motorsport Park. That is a beautiful facility. In the spring, I bet it's even more gorgeous than it was when I was there in the fall. If you go, you got to go to the museum and see all of the bikes. It is incredible. Go see some Moto America. It's good value for money. You can go to the pitch. You can talk to the riders. It is a fantastic weekend to go. 
So I encourage you all to go and go if you can. I'm going to get out of here, Scott, because I got to get the last bit of stuff packed to go to Texas for the MotoGP race. Again, anybody who's down there wants to talk, hit me up at MotoRGV, Instagram, and Twitter. And with all that, I will tell you all to ride safe until Rich and I are back to talk about the race from Texas. Cheers. Cheers.